This Irish man stands with America. This is Freedom's Disciple with Jonathan Dunn on the Blaze Radio Network. Hello, America. Thank you so much for tuning in today. This, of course, is the show where you come for the accent. The wee 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 ha ha ha, the Frenchy French accent. And you stay for the principles. And today's show is going to be a bit different. And it's going to be, it's going to be for the first few minutes, I'm going to ask you to bear with me because I have to, what I want to talk to you about, I have to choose my words very, very carefully. But before I talk to you about some of the issues that are happening in your country, the likes of Coke, Black History Month, I need to just take you back to philosophical point of view to get you to the, understand the baseline of pretty much today's show. You know, there's so many complex issues in this world, but in many ways, they can all be broken down into a couple of questions. Everything that you see, no matter whether it's on economics, whether it's on the Constitution, whether it's on war, whether it's on drugs, regardless of whatever issue that you would pick, there's a couple of questions you need to ask yourself just to understand the baseline of what the topic is about. And the first one is, listen to what the problem is, and listen to the solutions that are been put forward, whether it's by government, by the media, by the talking heads, ever who it is. And ask yourself one question. Who does this empower? And more importantly, who does this disempower? You see, the great thing about America and why America is exceptional and unique is you always empower the individual. If you look around at the solutions that you see today, Regardless of whether it's put forward by a Republican or a Democrat, it always seems to empower government. It always seems to empower D.C. It always seems to empower the presidency. And who does it disempower? You, the American people. But under that, there's a sub-question, which always usually is a similar answer. Is when you look at a solution, when you look at a discussion, is does it make you more independent or dependent on someone? Whether it's dependent on another person, whether it's dependent on a government, whether it's dependent on a politician, whether it's dependent on, you know, a religion. Always ask yourself these questions. You see, this is the big divide in the biases. It's not left and right. It's not top or bottom. It's not Republican or Democrat. If you share a lot of my views and you share a lot of your founding father's views, you'll always be on, I'm going to empower the individual at all costs. And I'm going to make them as independent as possible. Now, the thing that when people want to criticize me is they go, oh, well, I listen to you. You sound like an anarchist. If you follow the Constitution, you are the furthest thing from an anarchist that you can have. It's just you have certain principles that you believe in government, that you understand that government has a role, that you understand anarchy didn't work. When you, if you want me to use a historical example, I don't think anarchy, you could say anarchy has ever really existed in the world, unless you want to say the Garden of Eden. But in a constitution or in a government point of view, the closest the world has ever come to anarchy was the Articles of Confederation prior to your constitution, prior to your Declaration of Independence. That didn't work out too good. So you need to understand that there is a role and your founding fathers believed in a strong centralised government. That was extremely limited. They wanted government to do things, but they understood one fundamental principle. That where there is a clear and defined need for government, it should work as close to the people as possible. We discussed this last week when we spoke about the Great Reset. That's all about, hey, who's it going to empower? The debate with the Great Reset has changed from we're going to empower government to we're going to empower organizations. And what does it do to you? Does it make you more independent? No. It makes you more dependent on them, that you're going to have to do what they want. If you want to work with them, if you want to have a contract with them, you're going to have to follow and play by a certain set of rules. Which brings me on to, this is the last week of February. February in America is Black History Month. And this is where I need to be very careful because there are people who listen to this show who don't like me very much and want to take me out. And I want to choose my words extremely carefully. There is this myth in America that the system of American culture and the system of Western values is systematically racist. It's built by the white men. I always find this very frustrating. One is because if you've listened to me for a long time, you know I've talked about Martin Luther King and you know different leaders and civil rights leaders, Booker T. Washington at different times on this show. I have the one that has studied American history and said, you cannot talk American history without black history, without Asian history. 
without white history. You, it's not just, hey, American history belongs to a certain race. It belongs to everybody. Black, white, rich, poor, gay, straight. That is American history for the good and for the bad. You cannot sort of isolate this idea of, well, everything America did was about a race. It wasn't. But let me talk to you about modern day worlds. Because there's this oppression that's going on about there. We live in this white society. And what we all need to do as a white person, i.e. people like me, we need to wash ourselves. We need to cleanse ourselves of our whites. I don't know about you, but there's not one opinion I form or have held that has been based on, well, I wonder if, you know, I, I think I stand for this principle. I think I stand for this idea. But gee, is this consistent with me being white? I could care less. I would, could care less about what your gender is, and I could care less about, sorry, not my gender, my race. I could care less about what your race is. This idea of freedom, of God-given individual rights, of limited government, of the Constitution, does not matter who the authors were. It was divinely inspired. It's about who it serves. Who does it empower? Does it empower white people? No. Because freedom is for everybody. Freedom is for everyone, regardless of your race or your color or your creed. Now, has America always lived up to this mission statement? Has America always said, hey, we're perfect. We've got this freedom thing down? No. Look at your government. I can talk to you all day long about how bad your government has been. The dark days of American history, I guarantee you, you sit down the worst progressive lefty of, oh, America sucks and America this and America that. I guarantee you, you put me and them in the debate and we just want to talk about bad American history. I guarantee you, I know more than they do. That's not saying, hey, I'm uh, uh, John's awesome. Now, that's nothing to do with ego. That's just because I've studied your history. I can talk to you about the dark days in history. I can talk to you about Supreme Court decisions. You want to talk about Korematsu? Go for it. You want to talk about Plessy versus Ferguson? Go for it. You want to talk about Roe versus Wade? I'll talk to you all day long about the bad things in America. I'll talk to you about the Battle of Wounded Knee. I'll talk to you about the bad days of America all day long. Do you know what the difference is? All of those bad, bad days all seem to have one common theme. Government. And it all boils down to not empowering people, but disempowering people. It's saying you need the government to do things. The government is a great moral arbiter in society. And it's always about making the individual dependent. So let me get back to Black History Month. Today, everyone will tell you Black people are oppressed. And that you need to, you need reparations. That, you know, if you need to cleanse yourself of white guilt, you need to cleanse yourself of white nationalism. Which, by the way, white nationalism part, if you actually believe in white nationalism, yes, you do need to cleanse yourself of that. But it, the percentage of Americans, it's, it's, it's itty bitty. It's minute. They're bad people. The Richard Spencers of this world. But the average person, just because we're white, that means nothing. But let's talk to you about the black people. Let's talk to you about the African Americans. Let's talk to you about people who are, quote unquote, oppressed. Let's say that's true. Let's just say for argument's sake, everything they say is true. What is your message to them? You see, the problem I have with all these people who want reparations and all these great equalizers in society is they all want governments to fix it. They all want to say, hey, we, you need to be taken down. We need to disempower you. We need to make you dependents. We need to put you back in your place and we need to rise these people up. I disagree with that message. It's not an empowering message. Do you want to hear an empowering message for an African-American, a black person of color? Here's the thing. You can do it. Let me talk to you about some historical examples that are of modern day. You know, this idea that black people can't do anything. Really? Who is the best golfer that ever lived? Tiger Woods. Hmm. Last time I checked, not white. Who's the best basketball player of all time? Hmm, Michael Jordan. Now, is Michael Jordan white again? No, he really isn't. Who is best at baseball? You know, there are many things, many different aspects of this. You can talk about Jackie Robinson, who we honor every year in May. We can talk about different people like Babe Ruth. Sure, he's a white guy. But you, you can't write history without Hank Aaron. Hmm, was Hank Aaron white again? 
No. Look around the NFL. Was it 75 or 80% of people who play in the NFL are black? Hmm. Wow, look at all those players. Look at all that oppression. Oh, John, okay, fair enough. That's sports. Black people have done really well in sports, but that's not life. Okay. Actors. Let's talk about Hollywood, because this is all about culture, right? You want to be a great black person? You want to go change the world? Look at Denzel Washington. Look at his career. It's incredible. He's played from everything from a scholar to a hitman to everything in between. He's incredible. Look at Morgan Freeman. Morgan Freeman, the man who has probably or arguably one of the greatest voices in the world or in history of the world. He is so compelling as a storyteller, as a voice. He played God in a movie with Jim Carrey. Oh, well, mm, a black man been God. There surely was outrage of, no, not really. I didn't see any of it, did you? Morgan Freeman playing God. No. But look at all the, look at that culture. Okay, that's fair enough. That's Hollywood, John. That's just another kettle of fish. Let's look at culture. Okay. Look at some of the most successful black people that you see. Whether you like them or not, Oprah. Oprah is a household name and has been for what, 30 years now? Look at Jay-Z, look at Beyonce, look at rappers, look at Kanye. Oh, but they're all culture, John. Give me something else. Okay, Barack Obama. You want to understand, if you actually believe in everything about systematic racism, your message shouldn't be, hey, we need a great equalizer, we need government, we need this, we need that. No, your path has been paved in modern history. Be the next Tiger Woods. Be the next Michael Jordan. Be the next Denzel Washington. Be the next Barack Obama. Even if you don't like him, be the next John Lewis. You can do it. But even that's only modern day history. You see, what absolutely annoys me is how we are just whitewashing history. We just destroy history. Because you see, the understanding is people go, okay, fair enough, John, you may have a small point, but that's today. What about historical? Look at the history of black culture in America. Look at people like Booker T. Washington. Oh, what? Oh, that's right. I forgot. I, I, I just realized I forgot modern day history. That apparently is, is a fiction story. You, uh, you want to talk to me about my white racism? People are literally rewriting history and saying at the start of Up From Slavery, it's based not on a real person, not on Booker T. Washington, but that Booker T. Washington is a fictional character. And that book is based on a fictional narrative. Imagine me, imagine if the Klan wanted to do that. If Richard Spencer, which is an amazing book, Up From Slavery and Booker T. Washington. If Richard Spencer came and went, you know what? We need to get, we, we need to stop black people reading this. We need to make sure people know this is only a, you know, a fiction story. You would rightly be absolutely angry. The mainstream media would go crazy. Yet today it's done, nothing. Absolutely nothing. What about people like Rosa Parks? Why don't you follow in their footsteps and kind of go, hey, I don't need anyone to do it. I'm going to do it. I'm going to make the change. I'm going to be the change. It's not up to government. It's not up to the, the, you know, the local government or federal government. I'm going to be the change. What about people like Chris Nixanis? In the revolution. How about people like them? How about you start understanding that there's just a couple of names. I could go on and on and on. And say, hey, guess what? If you think black people are oppressed, I disagree with you. But let's say everything you say is true. Let's empower them. Let's say, you know what? Everyone who says you're not equal to the white man is full of crap. Is full of horse manure. You are as just as good. You are just as equal as they are and that you have every opportunity. And anyone who says you can't, just ignore them. Don't let them stop you. Because life is filled, whether you're black, whether you're white, whether you're Hispanic, whether you're Asian, whether you're gay, whether you're straight. Life is filled with people of saying you can't do things. You can't change the world. You can't do this. Oh, you're only from this person. Do you know how many times I get that? Oh, you're only from Ireland. Who gives a shit what you think? Who cares? Go away. I could listen to them go, oh, I can't do anything. I'm from Ireland. I'm fat. I'm ugly. I'm single. <laughs> now, sometimes I do want to do that, and I do do that. But eventually, you have to get past it. You have to go, no, I'm going to prove it to them. I'm going to prove it to them that they are wrong. 
which leads me to Coca-Cola. Mm. Coca-Cola recently had someone in. And I'm not going to give this person any credence because they are a phony. They are a hack. They are just the worst person. It's one of the worst people of modern day thinking culture. And they did this great thing about, hey, what you need to do, and it was a training schedule. What you need to do is you need to be less white. So, okay, okay, let's play along. Okay, I'm, I'm going to be less white. Okay, you're going to dictate to me, hey, this is what you need to do. Okay, cool. So I need to be less white. Talk to me. What does that entail? When you need to be less oppressive. Who am I oppressing? Like literally, like, like literally, like right now, I'm stuck in my house. I can't go more than three miles from my house. I can't go to the gym. The only way I can leave my house is if I walk my dog or I go to the shops to get supplies. Everything else is shut down in Ireland still because of COVID. Who exactly am I oppressing? Hmm. Well, you're white. Yeah, you're white. Okay. Less arrogance. <laughs> this is funny. Less arrogance. Okay, cool. Great. Less arrogance. I don't know how that's possible, but okay, let's move on to the next one. Less certain. Less certain, really. So I'm the problem because I'm too certain, because I believe, you know what? Let's believe all people are created equal, that you have certain rights from God, that everyone's entitled to be free. That I need to be less certain. Okay. I need to be less defensive. See, John, this is where it is. This is where they got you. Get you. Got you. You're very defensive about this racism. Like, like you've been speaking for a good few minutes now. You, you sound mighty defensive to me. No, not defensive. I'm angry. I'm passionate. Because I see this content of your character. And I see that just being eroded. And let's just base everything on what your color of your skin is. Something you can't control. Less ignorance. Okay, I'm not claiming to be the smartest person around, but I sure ain't ignorant. More humble. Well, that one I might be able to agree with. I think that's a society rule because I speak about humbleness on this show and George Washington. You need to listen more. Okay. You need to believe more. Mm -hmm. Believe what? Believe what? What you say? Mm. You might be saying a lot of baloney though. Well, does that mean I have to believe you? Break with apathy and break with white solidarity. Hmm. First things first, that's the list. So imagine I did a list and I went around, and let's just say I was an expert and let's say everyone just accepted me as some type of you know, expert on blackness. That you know, for some reason I had the inside track on how to tell people, you know what you need to do? You need to be more black. And I went around and I said, hey, black people, to be more black, you need to be more oppressive, more arrogant, more certain, more divisiveness, uh, more, uh, more, more ignorance, less humble. You need to listen less. You need to believe less. You need to break with apathy. And you need to, you know, be more about your, your brace. Imagine me telling you that. How would you feel about that? How would you feel with those generalizations? You see, the thing about I have a big problem with racism is because generalities never work. Let me just prove to you that they don't work. Imagine I said to you something right now, because the contents of this is you're white, you're, you're guilty, you know, you're guilt by association. You're either racist or you're not anti-racist or you're, you're just ignorant and you just don't know any better. Imagine I just threw out a statement and I went, you know what the problem with this world is? The problem with this world is everyone over 50 sucks. Everyone over 50 is an oppressor. Everyone over 50 needs to have their money stolen from them. How would that sound? Do you think that would anyone... Now, maybe the money stolen part would get the lefties going, oh, yeah, absolutely, let's steal their money and then let's reduce the number to 40 and to 30 and let's just take all the money. But what would you think the, the society reaction to that statement would be? Would it be positive or would it be negative? Because I want to explain something to you. Outside of one man, Mark Zuckerberg is the exception. Everyone on the Forbes rich list of the uber rich, the richest of the rich, number one to 10 from every year from 2020 to 2008 has been filled with people over 50. There's a generalization, right? Well, everyone that's uber rich, the top 1%, the top 1% of the 1% of the 1% are over 50. Clearly, they're the problem. 
But I know there's people who are over 50 listening to this show who do not have 1% of 1% of 1% of, I don't know, Elon Musk's money or Jeff Bezos's money because they're worth billions. You see, this is the problem with generalities. You don't have anything in common with them. You might be a 50-year-old kind of going, what have I done wrong? Why, what, what, why, John, why are you angry at me? Well, it's all those CDs Forbes list. All those people have all the money. So it's every, everyone over 50 is the problem. But, but I don't have Jeff Bezos' life. I don't have anything in common with him. I don't even know to do. So why am I the problem? Exactly. That is the problem with, when you start breaking things down into generalizations. But also, imagine I was saying, I don't know, that all, all thing, every, a certain attribute is black. That is one of the most racist statements. It's not an attribute due to your race. It's an attribute due to who you are. Some are good and some are bad. There are good people around. There are jerks around. This is not about race. I know lots of white people. Some are really good people. Some are jerks. Some are a-holes. Some are like, I never want to see you again. Likewise, I've met black people. Some are really cool. Some are friends of mine. Some are like, dude, I, I'm not hanging. No, just no. Likewise, you Christians. I've, I've met a lot of Christians in my lifetime. I've been in many churches. There are some Christians I would have in my house. And I go, absolutely. I'll go worship with you. I'll go serve with you, even if we don't share a religion. But there are Christians who I like, <laughs> stay away from them. <laughs> no, they're, they're Christian in name only. They, they sure talk a great game. But when it comes down to ego and, and just arrogance, they're there. They're all about them. They're, they're in the church of me, not in the church of God, in the church of me. So how do we solve this? Again, boils back down to where I started. Let's tie this all up in a bow. Who do you want to empower? If there are black people, and listen, black people have it rough. You know, still there's racism out there. You see it online. You see people been called the N-word. Great. I'm all for solving that problem. I ain't all down for, hey, it's every white person is the problem. No. It's not about, hey, well, I need to rid myself of my whiteness and break with my white solidarity. Here's the question when it comes to race. How do you want to be dealt with? And this is up for race, for gender, for sexuality, for anything. Hey, I'm John. Nice to meet you. I, I'm really passionate about America. I'm passionate about the Constitution. I'm passionate about freedom. Nice to meet you. Let's have a conversation. Notice I didn't say anything. Hey, I'm John. I'm white. Hey, I'm straight. Hey, I'm single. Hey, does it matter? Hey, I'm in the, the 35 to 50 age bracket. But what are you? And let's judge you. No. This is what it all boils down to. The question that has to be answered, and this on this topic has to be answered by black people and minorities. How do you want to be judged? Do you want me to see your color? Because Martin Luther King said, I don't want to judge by the contents. I want to be judged by the content of character, not the color of my skin. Is that what you want? Or do you want me just to see your blackness and then judge you accordingly? Because I won't do that. I will judge you on the content of your character. And I ask you to judge me the same. Don't look at my whiteness or my straightness or my sexuality or my, hey, I'm a man. It doesn't matter. That doesn't define me. What defines me is my idea. What defines me is what I promote. What defines me is who I, who I am and how I act. joined by a friend of mine, John Miltimore. He is the managing editor of Fee. And I'm really excited to talk to him about um, Free Market Economics, what they do over at Fee. It's a great website. If you don't check it out, please do. Uh, there's there's few sites I check out on a daily basis. There's the Blaze, there's the Daily Wire, there's the Irish Propaganda websites of the Irish government and there's Fee because they do great work over there. They talk about lots of different subjects. I encourage you to check it out. John is the um, managing editor. Welcome, John. How are you? Hey, I'm doing great, John. Thanks for having me on. Thanks for, thanks for coming on. So before we get to the, the big issues of like what we want to talk to you about in Venezuela, because you wrote a great article there last week about it. One of the things I love about you you guys and you've, you've got a bit of it, a lot of recognition over the last couple, maybe the last month is you've been uh, in the top 2.5% of think tanks and in the liberty movement, you're in the top 10. Congratulations. And I just love you to tell my, my audience what, what you do, what your passions over there, what, you know, what you're trying to do with, for the rest of the world and trying to get a message out there. 
Yeah, no, it, it was great news. It was great for us. Uh, Fee was ranked um, top 10 of the Liberty, you know, think tanks uh, in, in the in the country. Um, out of, you know, I think there, there was, you know, several thousand, you know, think tanks that were uh, ranked and, and we were, I think, 52nd out of all of them. And uh, the, the survey was done by the University of Pennsylvania and they asked, you know, thousands of scholars and philanthropists and policymakers uh, for their input. And uh, I was very impressed. Uh, it was a proud moment for me, you know, that we ranked so high. And it just really is a testament to the work that FEE does. Um, our mission is, is about bringing, you know, economics and economic freedom uh, ideas in that vein to young people um, in, in, in everyone. You know, our organization has been around since the 1940s. It was, it was founded by the great writer Henry Hazlitt. Uh, and Leonard Reed, uh, a brilliant philosopher. And, you know, it, it really is. Their foresight was so Im impressive because they saw the need for Fee's mission um, way back then. And, and since then, it's only be become more important because, you know, the, the ideas of you know, economics, economic freedom really aren't being taught um, in schools like they once were. And, um, you know, these are, these are ideas that are important for a civil and uh, peaceful society so that our mission is getting these ideas out there to, you know, people any way we can. And we're reaching thousands of young people. Um, Absolutely. And one of the things I think was really cool was you guys have fee and Espanol. So like, that's, that's also another, you know, addition to your market to, you know, to explain it to other people. Yeah, it really is. I think it's, it, you know, I'm, I'm biased for the things that we do, you know, on, on, on fee.org, the, the website that, that I manage. But fee in Espanol is, is really, I think, maybe our most exciting product. Um, a lot of, you know, of our energies and outputs are being translated into, um, into Spanish and being disseminated uh, throughout Latin America. And it is growing so rapidly. Uh, and it's really fun for me when I see, like, I'll see some of my work be, being published in different languages, uh, in, in Fia Espanol, you know, we'll, we'll see it. Um, you know, I, I, I can't read the takes. I think that's mostly, you know, people, you know, praising the article. I hope it is. And it's not just, you know, Spanish. Like, we'll, we'll see it in, you know, in, in Poland, uh, in German, in, in different articles that we have, you know, because these principles are universal. Economics is important wherever you live. Um, economic freedom, liberty, these, these ideas are, are universal and, and necessary. Um, and, and, you know, we are, we're, we're a global organization and we're, we're reaching, you know, millions and millions of people um, with, with our articles, uh, you know, every year. Absolutely. I always say on this show, like, one of the reasons I'm a big free market person is because it breaks down boundaries. You know, it's not of, you know, oh, you're an American and I'm Irish and, you know, you might be a certain religion and I'm a certain religion. We hate each other because of our nationalities, or our races or whatever. When you can start trading with people, all of a sudden you're not, you know, that, that American over there, you're John. And I know about you and your kids and your wife and you build up that relationship and that rapport. And all of a sudden we find we don't have as much, you know, we might be told we have to hate each other for whatever reason. But when we start talking and communicating, all of a sudden you see it's a person and it's, hey, they're just they're like me. They, you've worried about your kids or your life or you're worrying about the bills. And it's it, bring, it, it builds up a, a camaraderie. And that's one of the reasons. So I would ask you, what, why, what's so passionate? Why are you so passionate about free market economics? Why, what's your, like, what got you into it? Yeah, I've been at FIFA for about three years now. And the thing that really excited me about the organization is its principles. Its principles are, are ones that I just believe to my core. Um, and it's, it's the idea that voluntary association is good, that coercion is not good. Um, our motto is anything peaceful. We, you know, we, if you look throughout history, people that, that trade together, um, that that engage in commerce, um, it, th those are the, the it's a pathway to peace and prosperity. Um, and I think you know, especially in the 20th century, I think there's been a lot of confusion, and and we've kind of lost you know, those principles a little bit. We we look at coercion, we we see it's almost like the ring of power. People see all the good things they can do if they just had the one ring. If if they had power, they can build a better society. Um, but it's built through coercion. It's built from taking. Um, and like the, the ring of power, it, it, it can corrupt the user and it, and it can really corrupt the fruit that is built from that. Mm 
Um, and, you know, fee reminds people that um, the path to prosperity and peace, it's through it's through trade and commerce. It's not it's not through taking from others. And um, though, to me, that's it's a beautiful mission. And it's a it's it, they're, they're beautiful principles. Um, and I think today people get nervous a lot talking about a lot of ideas. Right. Like we're not sure if our ideas are, are OK. Um, I think, you know, what makes fee so great are these are ideas that people can can get behind. There's nothing controversial about, you know, saying, look, look, we shouldn't take from other people. Um, you know, we have a duty to, to our yeah, fellow men to help each other. But yeah, let, 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 let's, you know, don't hurt people. Don't take their stuff. Um, and those are really simple ideas. When you stop and think about it, um, you say, wow, but that does make sense. And then you realize the, the, the fruit of those ideas is, is wonderful. It, it leads to more prosperity. It, it, leads, to, it leads to more uh, civil discourse and camaraderie, as, as you point out. Absolutely. And that's the thing that I always get frustrated is you can't actually discuss ideas of people. And, you know, it's you, you mentioned the word principle. That's a, thing, a common theme on this show. It's all about principles. But like everything is so political in America, in Europe, you know, you automatically have to have sides. You know, it's I, I've, I've, I've been part of loads of discussions online and it's the latest one is now, are you team Bezos or you team Musk? And you're kind of going. It, it doesn't have, you know, because they're competing for the richest man and, you know, Elon said this and, you know, you know, different things to, in a quote to the Washington Times. And it's kind of, go, we don't have to pick a side. I get it's a bit of fun and there's, you know, people, you know, on team Elon all the way, but it's not a, you know, it doesn't define me. You know, it's, it's, right. it's, I, I can appreciate what Amazon has done because my world has changed because of Amazon and, you know, doing things. It, it doesn't have to be good or bad. It can be, I prefer, I think Elon's cooler, but you know, we, you know, you can like appreciate both of them. Whereas you have to either love one and hate the other. And it's so frustrating. Uh, yeah. And I think that's, that's one of the things that you guys do. It's not about politics. It's, it's not, Hey, well, you know, right, good, left, bad. It's kind of, no, these are the principles. Let's talk about them. And, you know, there are some principles that are self-evident and, you know, free market economics should be one of them because it does break down so many walls. But which gets me on to, you know, when free market economics is cast aside and we talk about government and, you know, molding and shaping an economy. You wrote an article a couple of weeks ago uh, on Venezuela. And I just love you to, you know, talk about, you know, what Venezuela was like, you know, at the start. Because a lot of people today think of Venezuela as this really poor country or as, you know, you know, they might think of Maduro or they might think of Chavez or maybe was the Trump, I think Sean Penn went there. It was that Cuba. That's all they know. Um, but, you know, if you talk about, you know, 1950s, they were one of the one of the richest nations in the world. Why don't you tell people about that? Yeah, I mean, I think most people are aware of Venezuela's, you know, sad predicament. Um, it it um, for, for years now, they've been struggling with, you know, extreme poverty. Um, they're on the verge of, of famine. They have an energy crisis. Um, and it's easy to forget that, you know, they were in the, in the 1950s. Um, they were one of the, you know, per capita, one of the 10 wealthiest nations in the world. Their productivity was, was higher than the United States. Um, the, it first started to change a little bit in the mid-70s. Um, they, um, they nationalized the petroleum sector. Um, and if you look, you can see their, their GDP, you know, halts a lot. Like it, it, it basically flatlines for a few years. Um, they did get a lot of public spending um, out of that that period, and and I think you know if you look for a short time, inequality you know was was diminished. They were using you know these public resources to do some things. I think the people of Venezuela probably liked. Um, it did take a big bite out of their economic growth, um, and it, but in the eighties it, it started to grow again, and and then you had you know Hugo Chavez that came in in the late nineteen nineties. And was really, you know, a populist who, you know, elected uh, on a platform of, of democratic socialism. Um, and a lot of people got really excited about Chavez. Um, you know, he, um, he it was about in 2007, 2008, he started nationalizing industries. And you had places that, like, like Salon, they, they, you know, at his death, they said, you know, basically they called it Venezuela's socialist miracle. Like they, that Chavez proved that socialism could work, they said. Um, well, you know, even when that was published, Venezuela was already in the in the throes of, of its downfall. If you look, their GDP was collapsing, um, and you know, Maduro came in, you know, after Chavez, um, and you know, he came into a tough situation. The, the country was already beginning to collapse. The, the price of oil, um, you know, even even if oil prices, you know. Commodities, we know this. They, 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 prices go up, they go down. Venezuela took a big hit there, and they weren't able to recover. They tried to control a lot of this 
through price controls, wage controls, currency manipulation, which only exacerbated their problems. Um, and my article pointed out, like just, just recently it was revealed in a Bloomberg article that for the first time, um, well, I guess it started in 2017, uh, but for the first time it was revealed, I should say, um, that, that they are now giving industry back to private ownership. Um, and they're doing it out of necessity. Like, I think it's important to understand, um, you know, Venezuela is not making a, a pivot to capitalism. They're, you know, Maduro is, is, is just fighting for survival at this point. Um, but they real, they realize they can't centrally plan this economy. Um, and, and they're relying now on, on sort of so hopefully, you know, private, getting some private investors, getting them skin in the game can actually, you know, save a lot of these industries that are that are faltering. That's one of the things that always frustrates me. If I can go back to just a point you made there a second ago, it always frustrates me with the discussion about, you know, what are socialism works. Like, you know, you take some of the industries in Venezuela, like they, they, they didn't just, it's not just like, you know, the, the energy where oil was controlled. Like they took over hotels. Like, and it's always, well, look, you know, the, the GDP is rising. So this, you know, socialism works. I always, I hate that argument. Even let's say if it's 100% true, which it rarely is. But, like, imagine you're that person who, like, you know, built that hotel. You prided yourself on, you know, always giving your customers the best service. Anytime they went into the town, they stayed with you because you looked after them. They loved your greeting. You're always friendly. You had the best staff. You had the best food. And then, boom, your federal government comes in and says, hey, we're nationalizing you. And let's say, let's say that sparked an economic revival. My frustration with always is, well, what about the person who you've just taken from? You know, they always just never, ever, it never even comes into people's mind of, hey, what if, who, who are we just screwing over? And like all these industries, like even if you talk about the farmers with the grain, you know, they could have worked their, they, you know, like grain is not an, you know, an easy product. You know, we see it in a bag, you know, in the store, but, you know, the work that goes into it, it's sweat intensive, it's labor intensive, and you're just going, boom, gone. And not like that, that farm could have been in the family for 10, 20, 30, you know, generations. And it's just gone. And they just get cast aside. I think that's one of the things I don't know about you, but I think we need to do a lot better of telling those stories. Oh, I agree. Like, uh, you know, those are stories that need to be told. Like the, the farmers who um, were producing grain, you know, they know the land. They know how to produce. They know how to get their product to market. And what you saw in Venezuela, um, some of these farms, they, they seized these, these granaries. They weren't even working like they've been they've been, you know, for, for years now, they've been, you know, completely sidelined. Um, and, you know, like that's one of the reasons they're giving them back. You had people that thought, oh, we, we can run this better. So we're going to take they're gonna, we're going to take this and we're going to really show you know how, how, how to run this. The people that, that are doing this, they don't realize what they don't know. And, you know, I, I think every socialist country, I think people forget this. Every socialist country is built on good intentions. Um, if you li li listen to Pol Pot, like he was. I think he was really hurt by the way things ended up. I don't think he wanted things to end up that way. He believed he was ushering in a utopia, you know, in Cambodia. He, he didn't believe it was going to be, you know, millions of people dying. Um, and I, so I, I think there's this idea that, you know, like when, when socialism fails, it's just because, you know, you had the wrong, the wrong people running it. Um, they were bad people. But that's really not the lesson. Um, most of the people that, that you know, took over um, had, had good intentions early on. And then they realized... Then it shifts to power. Then their power is challenged. That's when we see, you know, dictatorship in these things. Um, but but it, it's, it's pretty much a universal story. Um, you know, the people with good intentions, they think that they're going to usher in a better world for people. They don't, they don't really um, know. They're, they're not able to foresee all the problems that are going to re result from their actions. And there's always a food shortage, amazing. I, I don't know if you remember the Reagan story, you used to always love it, where, you know, he's the, the commissars visiting the farmers and he goes, you know, all these, show me all these great things. He goes, oh, if you piled all our potatoes on top of each other, it would reach the foot of God. And he's like, this is Soviet Russia, there's no God. And he's like, that's okay, there's no potatoes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's interesting, that story, like, I did something, I think, last year, the year before, on, you know, when, when Boris Yeltsin, it was a very famous story, but when Boris Yeltsin visited you know, uh, a, a, just a grocery store in Texas, um, he was just blown away. And there's other, you know, stories about, you know, a KGB defector, same thing. They couldn't believe the prosperity. And they're like, how do you get food to people? And they're like, well, it, we don't do anything. We just let markets work. And they, and, and they create, all of this happens on its own. It's not being directed. It's, it's, it's the beauty of spontaneous order when, when you just simply let people act 
um, with self-interest and, and, and don't get in the way of trade. Absolutely. So what's what's Venezuela doing now? They're going more because I, I can imagine the articles, you know, from some people who just read this is it's a win for for capitalism. It's a win for things like some of the I did some research like it's only for some of the case only for like 10 years. So yeah, what like, exactly are they doing? You know, and, and like I pointed out, like in, in the piece, it's more like economic fascism um, than than capitalism. Like basically they're, they're picking which which companies get to you know be privatized who gets to invest um for how long it's still very much a centrally planned economy and if you look like i don't think it's venezuela was was recently ranked second to last in the world in economic freedom they were one step ahead of, of north korea so i think it's important to tell like people don't get the wrong impression like this is not a capitalist utopia in, in venezuela it's still a, a very much a centrally planned economy um and and you know but there was you know Vern smith is a, is a nobel winning you know economist and he pointed out a few years ago you know the, the solution in venezuela is not hard like prosperity would return almost immediately if we simply got the state out of trying to manage all these operations. Um, and and I, I, I think he's absolutely right. Like, like these are fixable problems, but you know, it, it means letting go of, of control and power. Absolutely. Um, so one of the things that, you know, if I was to ask you, you know, from doing that article and research on Venezuela, you know, what, you know, taking it back to America, what are the things America can learn? Well, I, I think, you know, if there's, there's just a couple of things I would, Americans really need to understand. Well, one is the simple idea of trade-offs. Like Americans forget that you know, it's even like with these the, the st stimulus checks. Um, you know, like everybody's like, "Hey, I'm getting a check from the government," but they're not really thinking about all the things that is, it, that's being taken from people when when that's happening. And you know, I, I think you know Americans have, frankly, a lot, I think a, a a lot to learn about the negative consequences of, of you know, of government action. The, the pandemic really, I think, was a perfect example to highlight. It's going to be, you know, we're still doing postmortems on, on all the, the, the pandemic stuff, but I think we're going to see um, the, the lockdowns achieved very, very little. And if you look at the economic damage, the psychological damage, the health damage that, that was caused, these unintended unintended consequences of those actions, um, I think it can be a, a wake up moment for Americans. And, you know, we have a piece that's coming out, I think, over the weekend, and it, it looks at a poll. Americans, about, uh, I think 62% of Americans say the federal government is making the pandemic worse. And so my, my hope is that this sort of is, is that eureka moment where America starts to recognize that the government can't fix all these problems. Um, I, I think we, we've come it's almost like a form of, I hate to use the term state worship, but we, we now look and say like, well, there's a problem. What can government do to fix that problem? And I think that mentality um, is one that needs to be broken. Absolutely. And it's, it's, it's totally repeated. You know, even I saw, you know, which how a politician in your country, any country can get away with it was, I saw Chuck Schumer giving a press conference the other day and he's, you know, he's the Senator from New York. And you're like, first of all, why are you talking about Texas? But like, he's like, I hope Texas, you learned your lesson. And you're kind of going, and then it's like climate change is, and you're kind of going, you know, this idea that the state is all being, all powerful, all knowing is unbelievable. It's so far removed from what your founders were, was, you know, if there's a clear need for government, yes, but when there is, it should be as close to the people as possible. Whereas what we've seen is, you know, over a period of time, it's going more and more and more the opposite way. The thing I always say that annoys Americans when I say this is, you know, you're, what's funny is if you look at King, who you fought a revolution against, you know, the Queen today is more in line with your presidency uh, than, a, you know, what the, what the King was back then, than what you're in it. Like, you know, the Queen, the Queen, the Queen of England has the power the presidency should have, and the presidency in America has what the King had. It's all becoming so focused, whether you're left or right. And it, it's, you read Article 2, and it's like, there is no power there. Yeah, commander in chief, but you know, has to go to the Senate to declare war. Has to go to the Senate to to do agreements. And it's a case of how how do we get that message out to kind of go? Look, there's a reason for the founding principles of America of leaving people alone, and where there is a need, it's federalism. It's to the state governments to do things. Yeah, no, I, I think it's sort of you know, fe federalism has been on the wane for decades now. 
Um, and it, you know, if you look at the American system, that was that was how it was constructed. And I, I think the problem, uh, you know, like the story got lost. Like if you look, it was almost like the One Ring was used for some good purposes, you know, in the in the 20th century, and some good things were were, were done. Um, and I, it, it was it it left people with the wrong message. They 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 looked and said, oh, if we just have the right people in D.C., we can fix all these problems. Um, and, and the truth is, like, like they're really good at making problems worse, and they don't have the solutions to these problems, um, you know. And that's what you know. Lo local government is preferable to big government, right? Because at least you have more local knowledge in those situations. You have people that are at least more accountable to people, um, you know. But when you have, you know, we're a country of 330 million people, and you have a, a small group of people in DC trying to run this this big, vast, complex system. Um, it, it's really no way to succeed. Um, is, a, is a country it's causing all kinds of problems economically and I think a lot of the political bitterness is because of it because you have people in DC trying to decide what curriculum is taught in schools um, and you know you you know using government government in ways it was never intended so um, you, you're right we've strayed a lot from that you know that original style of government um, and you know in, in one way American history is like one one long struggle you know, trying to say like, okay, where, where is power the best? It, where is the best place for power? It has to lie somewhere. But the beauty of the original American system is it was, it was divided along these different places. There were all these checks and balances. And now, sadly, a lot of those checks and balances don't, don't exist. And you have a super powerful central government that really wants to run, you know, in many cases, you know, all aspects of individual lives and economies. Absolutely. And I, the, my only hope for, from COVID, and I haven't got much, I'll be honest, is, you know, when a government can tell you, you can, whether you can or cannot hug your granny, you know, what can that government not do? And I think it has to be a wake-up call for people to say, no, you can't do that. I'm sorry, I won't listen, I won't comply. Um, and we need, you know, civil disobedient rule breakers to go, no, I won't go over to cliff with you. I, I will go to my church. I will preach. I, I will. And I'll do things peacefully. I'm a peaceful guy. I'm not like riots and let's tear up the street. No, but we will do. We will not go over the cliff. There are certain things you have no right to tell me. I am a sovereign individual. But one of the things that, you know, one of the things that's frustrated me, especially over the last year in your country, it's been a big issue for a long time is your debt and your spending. Um, you know, one of the things when I was researching for, your, for this interview with Venezuela was when they started private, or sorry, start governments getting involved and buying all these businesses, the debt went up. And one of the things that's really scary for me is I was doing research for a totally different subject, but one out of every $5 that's in circulation in your country right now was printed in 2020. That is not... <laughs> And the problem is, is that how do we explain, the, I'd love to hear your opinion, how do we explain this to people? Because one of the things that really annoys me is, I, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm not one of these people, one of the criticisms of free market people is, oh, you're rich and you're powerful and you've all this money. I'm really poor. You know, I, I don't have access to a lot of money. So I know if all of a sudden inflation kicks in, it's got, you know, if all of a sudden I have $20 in my pocket, or in my case, 20 euros, and I go to the shop and inflation kicks in, I might only have the power of buying like 17 euros worth of stuff. That's going to hurt. Not, that's not hurting Mitt Romney. That's not hurting Jeff Bezos or Elon Musk. That's hurting the, the average person on the street. And I, I'll feel their pain. How do we explain that these principles, while they may be well-intentioned, I would disagree with that slightly, but that they're going to hurt the poorest in society the most? Yeah, you know, I, I think, you know, part of it is, is just making the case and arguing. Um, that's the positive in me. I, I do think we're going to have to see, you know, some adverse consequences of this because if you look we're, we're, we're pushing a 30 trillion dollar debt right now um we're looking totally at sustainable yeah two trillion dollars more into the economy um you know i think that's going to continue to happen until there's adverse impact now what, what what that looks like i don't think you know i nobody knows what that number is we do know that the the u.s you know the the debt to gdp ratio is pretty much like what, what Greece was before they had their, their financial crisis. So I, I think there is going to be some adverse impact coming soon. I don't know what that's going to look like, but I think that will be the wake up call. Um, and I, you know, and, and hopefully it, it is something, it'll be a pivotal moment when that happens. What, how are, how are we going to address that situation? Is it going to be through more, more government or are we going to recognize that? Okay. We're doing things now, you know, leaving the printing press on and embracing modern, modern, 
mo- modern monetary theory for a little while. Okay, we, we tried that. We here now we see what what happens when we do that. So now we got to pull back and maybe reassess how things are being done. But I think it's going to be. Um, you know, I, I've read some pretty smart people um, who said this is going to keep happening until until there's negative consequences. And so I, I think we're going to see more pumping. Um, you, you know, like there's the the, the, the sad no, the truth Democrats is, is totally going to stop that pump. Yeah, <laughs> the sad truth is the economy. You know, if you look, we're, we're looking at pretty good economic growth next quarter. So I read um, if you look, the stock market's in solid shape. You know, it's been a, a tough week or so. Um, a lot of people in this pandemic are doing just fine. I think there are a lot of people that are seriously struggling. And, you know, like there's going to be some some reality there that says, okay, how, how did this happen? Inequality we're going to see got much worse. How, how, how do we address that? Um, there's going to be the temptation just to, to send more money. Um, th- that's not going to fix a lot of the, the, the systemic problems, um, both in inequality and in the economy at, at you know at a larger outlook absolutely and when we come back we're going to talk about one of the potential solutions because you made a big bit of a life-altering decision in the last couple of weeks i've read so um i and I'm, i think it's a really good one so we're going to be right back So you wrote another article moving on from Venezuela a couple of weeks ago. Um, I, I don't know, do you, you, you're an economics guy. Do you like Paul Krugman? Uh, I, I, I'm not a fan. I actually am, and I'll tell you why. Because I, 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 he's my go-to guy. I'll read what he says. And if I, if I have the opposite opinion, I know I'm on a pretty good chance of being right. <laughs> but you wrote an article um, where he's like, you know, what if he had done, because he's been negative on Bitcoin for all the, the period of time. And one of the things that I, it frustrates me, I'm, I'm a big supporter. I'm not of Bitcoin, but of crypto um, because of the decentralization is, is that the arguments we deal with today are so garbage. Like one of the arguments I see for against crypto is, oh, but it's only numbers and it's only this. And, you know, it's only there as if, you know, if people want it and only has value because of that. I'm like, what do you think gold is? You know, if everyone decided gold was worthless tomorrow and it was silver or platinum or bronze or, or something else or coal, guess what? Gold would just go, done. Same with the dollar. You know, we only have, you know, in the faith of the government. And what's frustrating to me, especially on the dollar one, is gold always has been there, and I don't, I don't see gold going anywhere. But you know, the full fade and back of the the credit of the U.S. government. Yet you look at poll after poll, no one has confidence in your government, whether it's Democrats, Republicans, Libertarians, or Independents. And it's like you don't have confidence in your government, but your money totally sound. So what? Why do you think? You know, what, tell us about the article that you wrote about. You know, if he had, if he had followed, if he had done the opposite of what he said in 2015, how much money would you be worth today? Yeah, no, no. Krugman has been a, a Bitcoin skeptic and a crypto skeptic for a long time. And he did an interview in 2015 um, and he, he came off pretty poor in, in, in the interview. And it's not just because his predictions were wrong. OK, but that's OK. Pundits get things wrong. Like, like you know, you're, you're Paul Krugman's getting paid to have a lot of opinions. Some of them are going to be right. Some are wrong. And he, he said, you know, at the time, he basically encouraged people to not hold Bitcoin. At the time, it was about 300, 300 bucks a piece. Um, and you know he he, he poo pooed Bitcoin um, and kind of mocked it. That that's where I got a little you know uh, it's okay to be wrong, but but Krugman was mocking it and everybody in the audience was laughing. But if you, you know I, I forget the exact math, but basically a a seventy five hundred dollar investment in, in Bitcoin at the time when when Krugman called it a bubble that was going to pop um, would be worth more than a million dollars today. Point two. Um, yeah, and, and he's still he's still kind of it, the bubble just keeps getting big, you know, yeah. um, it, it, as he claims. And he, the other, Hug, Krugman didn't do his homework. That's you know, here's the one thing: like he he knows more about economics than I do, and ninety nine point nine nine percent of you know the other people in the world. But he 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 didn't look seriously at Bitcoin and its value proposition. Um, he compared it to credit cards. He said we already have electronic. You know, currency. Um, and, and since then, he's kind of his hang up is and this is a hang up for a lot of people that, you know, getting to what you suggested, you know, about gold. It's an untethered currency. It's not backed by, you know, any 
any sort of intrinsic value. It's not backed by government promises. Um, but but and I had a hang up with that too. I was for a long time. I wish I had would have bought would have bought you know Bitcoin several years before. Um, it took me a long time to see the va- the value prop in Bitcoin. But when you have this elastic, durable currency that is designed to be scarce, um, that's a very valuable thing. Uh, especially when you have these inflationary policies, it, you know, like the Bitcoin does have some hurdles. Like I get why people aren't using it very often as money right now. Um, it's, it's pretty volatile, but you know, it, as far as currency goes, would you rather be, you know, using a currency that is, that is becoming more valuable or one that's becoming less valuable. And I think once prices stabilize, um, Bitcoin will be a much more reliable form of currency than any fiat money uh, that you'll be able to find. Absolutely. And look, I, I get people are skeptical about it. I'm not saying it's the best. I'm not saying it's the solution. I believe it is um, because it's decentralized. And even if, if, if we get nothing else from Bitcoin, the idea of understanding the world history of 21 million Bitcoin, that's it. You know, that's, there is no more. You know, like even if you, I don't know how much you've read about ancient Rome, but one of the things that led to their collapse was they had gold coins and they started reducing the amount of gold in the gold coins. So they were actually lighter and people actually realized, hey, I've got this. Why is this gold coin lighter than the gold coin I had like a month ago? It's like, because there's less gold in it. Well, then it's, it's worth less than, no, no, it's the same value. And it kind of got, just in the head, they went, that, that don't you know that doesn't make sense to me there's less gold in it no it's still it's still worked you know whatever it was worth and it's kind of going you know this idea of not constantly printing money not adding one out of every five dollars you know was printed in one year that's the economic principle i hold but i also don't think it's crazy to go it's got as you know let's just even lower the standard it's got as much chance of survival as gold or, or cash maybe i think more but it, it's, is it so ridiculous and i think all these skeptics are really wrong um, but you also then wrote an article a couple of weeks ago about Jim Cramer's advice to, you know, he won the lotto. And you said you had invested in some cryptocurrency. So what made you make the, the big leap? Well, partly you're just, you know, as a speculator, you're seeing where prices are going. Um, and it, it's the, the, the trends are good. They're favorable. Um, you know, both, both, you know, Ethereum and Bitcoin had, you know, a, a minor pullback here. But I, I, I like you, I'm bullish on it as, as a is a currency. I, I think, you know, it's going to be a place where people go to store value. You know, you, there's other options. Gold's an option. Gold isn't quite as flexible as, as Bitcoin. Um, you know, like it, it has these properties that are, you know, designed to be scarce. It's designed for the world we're heading into, where you have um, all these inflationary policies. So, you know, whether whether or not it becomes a currency, I think I think it's before people are, you know, using Bitcoin, you know, like on in transactions, I think we're we're a little bit, you know, away from that. But I, I think in the short term, people are increasingly will use it to store value um, because they're going to see, you know, you have to put your money somewhere, and there is going to be inflation creeping in, um, in in different, you know, in all kinds of different sectors. We're seeing it in some commodities and food already. Um, I think it's going to get worse, and you're going to have to put your your money somewhere. You can put it in stocks. You can you can put it in gold. You can put it in Bitcoin. Bitcoin seems to offer, or you know, or other cryptos, they seem to offer more flexibility than any of them. And you know, as we said, that they're designed to be scarce. I, I just see demand for them increasing um, in, in the world we're heading into. Absolutely. So, if people want to find your work or find and get in touch with you, where can they find you? Yeah, our, our website is fee.org. You know, we're publishing articles there every day. I'm on Twitter at miltimore seventy nine. I get a little bit sassier there sometimes. So, you know, like trigger warning. Uh, but no, really, it, it's a great place to, to follow um, what's going on in, in the world. It's a great place to, to see, you know, to learn a little bit more about deepen your knowledge of economics, of economic freedom. Um, we, uh, we're doing some great work. And, you know, I, I'd encourage all listeners to go check us out. Absolutely. And double down on that, you know, even if, you know, you don't agree with everything you read, but, you know, it's a great platform to get you to think. And it's not, you know, Democrats, bad, Republicans, good. It's, it's a better principle. So I, I would strongly encourage you to check it out. And uh, that's it for today's show. We finish up the show the way we always do. We salute you, the American people. Never forget the secret sauce to America. It's the sentiments of the topo. America is great because Americans are good. Until next Saturday at 12 noon Eastern, have a beautiful and blessed week.
freedom versus freebies. This is Freedom's Disciple with Jonathan Dunn on the Blaze Radio Network.